Equal access to justice is a core American value. In each episode of Talk Justice, an LSC podcast, we will explore ways to expand access to justice and illustrate why it is important to the legal community, business, government, and the general public. Talk Justice is sponsored by the Leaders' Council of the Legal Services Corporation. Welcome to Talk Justice, an LSC podcast. I'm Ron Flagg, president of the Legal Services Corporation. Our focus today is on one of LSC's greatest allies in advocating for civil justice for low-income Americans, the National Legal Aid and Defender Association. My guest is the CEO and president of NLADA, April Frazier Kamara. April has been a champion for equal justice for two decades, a graduate of Howard School of Law. She worked as a public defender in her hometown of Memphis, Tennessee, and at the Public Defender Service for the District of Columbia before joining NLADA. April has been a part of the NLADA leadership team for the past five years, most recently serving as Vice President for Strategic Alliances and Innovation, and prior to that as Chief of Lifelong Learning. April, welcome. Thanks for joining us. You've been CEO at NLADA for a little less than a year, I believe. What most excites you about this role? Well, first of all, Ron, I want to say thank you for inviting me uh, to join you today. And I'm really excited to have a conversation with you. And, and so thank, first of all, thank you for um, the invitation. Yes, I've been in the role for about seven months now, uh, less than a year, and I'm most excited about the opportunity to support the very important work on the ground that our members do each and every day. We have the pleasure of being the only national organization that supports both public defense and civil legal aid. And we also have the voice of the directly impacted client community. And so it is quite an honor every day to be able to get up and do the very important and necessary work that we do at NLADA to make sure that people who don't have the financial ability to afford legal counsel receives access to representation in our legal systems. So, uh, you know, overall, the excitement is around supporting the work, the very important work on the ground that our members do. So. You mentioned NLADA includes as members both criminal public defenders and civil legal aid attorneys. And, you know, when you and I went to law school, we took civil procedure and that was one book. We took criminal law and that was a, a different book. But in your career, April, you've represented both low income clients in criminal cases and low income clients in civil matters. Could you talk about the intersections of criminal and civil legal issues in the lives of low-income Americans? Because it's not quite as uh, clear and distinct as, as it was presented to us in law school. Absolutely. What we know from practicing as a former uh, public defender who provided both civil legal aid representation and representation in criminal legal proceedings, that we know that the issues that bring people, specifically clients who are low income, what brings them into contact with both the civil and the criminal system, there are a lot of commonalities. So we know issues like access to health care and access to housing and whether or not a person 
is able to take care of their families. All of those issues actually result in many of the clients that we serve in both the criminal and civil context being oftentimes one in the same. So while it may not be the exact same client, oftentimes it's the same families. And we also see commonalities around communities. So for example, as a former public defender, I represented people in child support cases. So we understand that when a person comes into contact with the criminal legal system, there are a myriad of civil consequences that are triggered like um, child support payments or whether a person can keep their job or housing. And so we're really excited at NLADA that we can really shine a light on the full picture of the myriad of issues that people face when they are farthest away from resources and power in our country. And so um, oftentimes we, we see how both systems ultimately impact the same communities. Well, you talk about communities. I'd like to talk about the communities from which you sprung. Uh, you grew up in the uh, small town of Atoka, Tennessee. How did your experiences growing up inform your work as a lawyer earlier in your career and now at NLADA? My uh, childhood growing up in West Tennessee, I grew up in a small town. Atoka, Tennessee is about 30 miles outside of Memphis, Tennessee. And it was almost two different worlds. While Memphis was an urban environment, I grew up in a very rural environment, but a very strong community. But like many small towns in America, we had our share of issues around issues of racial justice. And so my experience of growing up in a community who I would characterize as still struggling with the reckoning uh, from integration and other issues in the 70s, um, I was able to see very clearly why it was so important that every person in America to have equal access to justice and equity. I was able to see very real impacts within our community of what happens um, in a community when people don't feel like they have equal voices or access to the same justice that is rendered for the majority of America. So I think my childhood growing up in Atoka taught me a few things. It taught me um, how important it is to make sure, regardless of income, that people have a sense of fairness and access to justice, uh, regardless of their zip code. But I think it also taught me the power of community. I was able to see as a young person that community is a really important component to uh, making sure that our systems operate in a fair way. So um, it's very much a part of my foundation and, and who I am today. Speaking of that, I think you may have mentioned to me at a, in a prayer conversation the influence of, of your grandfather on you. Could, you. could you talk about that a little bit? Absolutely. So I was very fortunate to grow up in a family that was led by my grandfather, David Weaver, who was the patriarch in our family. He only had a third grade education, but he was so committed to this idea that you have the power to create the world that you want to see. So as a young child, I oftentimes witnessed some of the real lived experiences of racism and how 
it would beat him down at times and to see him come home from work, but still very committed to making sure that the future generation, specifically myself and my sisters and my cousins, we had access to a good education. So I often share with people the story of this amazing library that we had in our grandparents' house that was built by my grandfather. And he brought books home, um, books home that he gathered from um, scrap yards and um, recycled stores. And we had access to books and I fell in love with the idea of reading, but also the idea of understanding that the power that you have to change the world. And that is something that was very much instilled in me uh, by my grandfather, who, while he did not have the opportunities that I share today, he very much believed in the power that we have as individuals to create a better world and to be a one together collectively. So the spirit of my grandfather really guides my work today and the audacity to believe that you have the power to change the world. Well, sometimes uh, people with a third grade education can become the greatest teachers uh, in our lives. Absolutely. Could you talk about your professional accomplishments, you know, prior and experiences prior to NLADA and how they prepared you for your work uh, at NLADA? So absolutely. I, you know, I would definitely when I think about my professional experience that prepared me for this role, I would reflect on my time of working as a public defender first in the D.C. Public Defender Service, which is one of the most well-resourced offices in the country who have really amazing national standards around how representation should be zealous and equal for all people. And I would dare say is one of the best public defender agencies in the country. And I also had the privilege of going back home to Shelby County, Tennessee, to help create one of the first juvenile defender units. And, and when I think about what has shaped my professional career is really looking at the disparities of those systems. I was able to see very clearly the difference of access to justice based on the zip code that you just happen to live in. I'm able to see the differences between systems that have local resources to supplement legal services versus communities who don't have those resources. So that experience has very much shaped who I am. I can understand the differences that many people experience in our country based on where you live and what communities you come from and how as a country, we shouldn't be satisfied with the fact that a person's access to justice and equity oftentimes is determined by your zip code. And that is not something that I'm OK with. And it's not a reality that at NLADA that we're willing to accept. So we understand the importance of making sure that we have national standards and resources to make sure that every person in America, when they step into a courtroom in America, they have zealous representation. Well, that segues well into my next question. Obviously, uh, my focus and LSC's focus is on representation in civil matters. And as I said at the outset of our conversation, NLADA is among our most uh, effective and committed partners on civil legal aid. 
Uh, and NLADA recently commented on congressional annual appropriation to LSC for uh, uh, fiscal year 2024. And I'd like you to share your thoughts uh, on government funding for civil legal aid and LSC. Absolutely. So one thing that we know for sure at NLADA is that the current funding for LSC program is only scratching the surface to meet the, the true need that is in our community. As many of us know, COVID-19 really poured back a Band-Aid on the very deep disparities between people in our country who have access to wealth and resources and those who do not. And so what we know, and thank you so much for your recent um, Justice Gap report, that we know not even 51% of people who are in need actually have access to legal services based on the current level of funding. And at NLADA, we actually put forth a projection of what we think is actually needed to meet the need. And the LSC, the most recent budget request uh, for 2023, asking for $1.6 we think is a, a great marker to really truly encompass the true need in our community, because we know that the need for legal services now is much greater than ever before. Well, we again thank you for uh, your thoughts uh, today, and and in part of our our budget process here at LSC. Let's switch gears slightly, although all of these topics are in ways interrelated. Uh, and let's go back just a couple years. How did the racial reckoning after the murder of George Floyd in 2020 impact you and your goals as a leader in both uh, criminal? public defense and, and civil legal aid? The racial reckoning from 2020, for many people who have been doing this work for many decades, for me, it didn't expose anything that I didn't already know. Rather, it was a confirmation of the lived experiences and things that I have experienced as an African-American for many decades or my entire life. What I think it offered to America was uh, a recognition, a broader recognition of how deep the seeds of racism and hatred are embedded in our country and how deeply entwined those issues are in every fabric of America. And so at NLADA, we took an internal look at ourselves and recommitted ourselves to centering the issue of racial equity at the heart of what we do because we understand that there cannot be true access to justice without racial justice. We have to find ways in our pursuit to improve access to justice, to also deal with the racial disparities that exist within both the civil legal system and the criminal legal system. And so for me personally, it allowed me to be able to raise awareness in many spaces where there was not a broad recognition of the need to continuously address this issue that we know is a driving force to issues of poverty, access to justice, and ultimately fairness in America. April, you've given us a sense of why racial equity and the, your racial equity initiative is at the center of your leadership vision, and obviously its relation temporally to the events in 2020 and, and the history long before that. 
what do you see the organization that is NLADA? Where do you see it being in five years? Uh, what are your your goals for your you know your first five years as as president and CEO at NLADA? One of our first goals for this year is definitely centered around the creation of a new racial equity institute, which is aimed at creating tools and resources to give our members very practical tools and advice on how do you address the issues of race that so many of them see in their daily practice. And so within this first year, we are very much focused on making sure that we have a a very hands-on resource center for members to advance racial equity. Within the next five years, our goal at NLADA is to, to do what many of our members are having to do, respond to the very rapidly changing needs of legal services due to COVID-19, racial reckoning, and other changes in our society. We hear from members each and every day that virtual proceedings and how you contact clients and how you give access to services have rapidly changed over the last uh, few years. And at NLADA, we also have to change. We have to change in how we deliver training and resources. We have moved towards hybrid training and to make sure that beyond conferences, we're able to support members in their day-to-day work um, of making sure that they are able to provide services to the community. So very much a part of the next five years is to really keep our ear to the ground and make sure that we are meeting the needs of the membership. April, you've been kind to answer my questions so far today, and I'd like to uh, give you a chance to turn the table. Uh, NLADA represents many, if not most, if not all of LSC's grantees. Uh, What questions would they want you to ask me as president of LSC? Absolutely. So, Ron, thank you for the opportunity. I guess one of the first questions I've, I've shared with you about our racial equity initiative at NLADA, which is actually rooted in um, the request from our members. And it is focused on internal changes at NLADA and within our civil legal aid and public defender organizations. So I wanted to know if you could share with me about the efforts at LSC to advance diversity, equity, and inclusion, and whether there are any internal processes or best practices that you all are learning through the process that we could share with the civil legal aid leadership across the country? Well, thanks for that question. I think as we think about it, although these these two are integrated, we think about both what we're doing internally at LSC, as well as what we're doing in our role as uh, a funder and hopefully a, a promoter of best practices among our grantees external to LSC. So let me start with the first. We started back in 2019, uh, Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Committee, which after I became president uh, in 2020, I was co-chair of. And our committee within LSC was focused pretty much exclusively on how to promote diversity, equity, and inclusion within LSC. Our board of directors uh, uh, developed a new strategic plan uh, to cover the years 2021 to 2024 that includes a provision that calls for 
LSC to make DEI pervasive within the organization in, in all of our activities. And that was really the mission of our internal DEI committee. And we broke up into several working groups, one focused on capacity, one focused on culture building, and uh, one uh, focused on communication. And each of those working groups developed recommendations for us to promote diversity, equity, and inclusion throughout the work we do at LSC. Again, both inward looking, whether it's recruiting staff, as well as thinking about how to promote DEI externally. Uh, our committee put together a set of recommendations that we released last fall. And uh, uh, among the first recommendations uh, was that we hire a DEI manager, which we did uh, earlier this year. And uh, our uh, uh, manager, Miriam Elias, and myself and others within the organization are coming up with a plan to implement uh, the three dozen or so recommendations that our committee came up with. So we're quite excited about it. We think the recommendations and the issues that the committee was grappling will serve to improve our organization in a myriad of ways. Uh, externally, um, you know, one thing we're trying to do is set a good example, but the bank of wisdom on DEI does not neither begin nor end with LSC. And there are, we have 132 grantees and many of them have been uh, working on racial equity and working on diversity, equity, and inclusion for years. And what we try to do, whether it's with regard to intake or uh, document management or DEI, is to identify those programs that uh, seem to have had success and then to share what they've been doing with, with our other uh, uh, grantees. So whether it's at uh, the NLADA uh, conference that'll be coming up in November or the Equal Justice Conference that we just held in Minneapolis recently or at other events that are hosted by LSC, those give us opportunities to um, showcase best practices among our grantees. And, and that's what we try to do. Yeah, absolutely. One motto at NLADA is that it's progress over perfection. So we know that the work of diversity, equity, and inclusion requires um, vigilance and a commitment. And so very excited to hear about the work you're doing internally. I guess my next question, Ron, is around LSC funding. As we both know, the current funding for LSC falls short of what the need is. And it has been that way for many decades now. And so many programs have been forced to make difficult decisions. For example, many have had to close one or more satellite offices in recent years. And this has particularly hit rural areas the, the most. Does LSC recognize that there is a rural justice crisis? And what is LSC doing to address it? Well, as you said, there's a justice crisis across America, and it's particularly acute in rural areas. You know, a couple of data points uh, in both regards. Uh, nationally, we were funded at $400 million in 1994, and almost 30 years later, our funding is, has barely grown. We're only at $489 million, even though since that time, we've had inflation, we've had recessions, multiple recessions, we've had a pandemic, 
We've had a growth in the population. We've had a growth in the uh, poverty population. So we've had chronic underfunding, and that affects us across the country. Obviously, the challenges in rural areas are even more extreme, and not just with regard to uh, legal aid attorneys, any attorneys. 20% of our population in the country live in rural areas. Only 2% of our lawyers live and work in rural areas. And uh, the legal aid programs, as you say, have had to shutter offices, and the offices that tend to get closed are the ones that are in the least populated areas. You're typically not going to close down an office uh, in the middle of a, an area where there are lots of clients uh, who are coming in every day. It's the offices where people are farther away and less prone to, to come into the physical office space. So we are, in addition to trying to raise our funding generally, we have right now a rural justice task force, which is focused on identifying the barriers to uh, legal services in rural areas and model practices to meet those barriers. Practices like using pro bono lawyers or legal aid staff in urban areas and somehow bringing them to the clients in rural areas, either remotely through technology or you know, periodically traveling to those rural areas. And the task force is, you can look up on www.lsc.gov. Uh, we have a, a website describing the work of the task force. We expect uh, that the task force will be releasing its report and its recommendations uh, early next year, probably in April or so. But in the meantime, we'll be holding field hearings and uh, periodically make uh, interim uh, reports. Uh, and uh, we are hopeful that the work we do, which is really highlight, again, this is not LSC coming up with bright new ideas on our own, but looking around to our grantees and other legal aid programs around the country and other uh, providers of services around the country is because often uh, what's needed in rural or uh, urban areas is collaboration between healthcare providers and, and legal providers or social workers and legal providers. But we are hopeful that by showcasing what is being done, uh, we can educate others as to how best to serve rural areas. And I might add, this is obviously uh, another one of these issues that just underscores that access to justice is not a uh, Democratic issue or a Republican issue or an urban issue or a Black issue or a white issue. It's, it really affects all Americans. Justice is a, a uniform value or should be a uniform value in our country. Absolutely. And I think um, you really highlighted a, a really good point. And my final question is around, it goes to bipartisan support for LSC. So we know the prior administration's attempt to defund LSC was actually met with bipartisan resistance in Congress. So I guess my question is, um, what do you think is preventing that support? from leading Congress to provide increased funding to finally close the justice gap? Well, that's a great question. And if, if I knew the answer, uh, we wouldn't be having this conversation. But I think, again, it's, it's a tough nut to crack because uh, as I go around and speak to members of Congress, both Republicans and Democrats, I have literally yet to, to talk to somebody who says, well, I just don't think this is important or I don't think you are 
your grantees do good work or important work, or I don't think that assisting veterans or seniors or victims of domestic violence or victims of disasters is important. Nobody says that, and everybody agrees that we need more resources. I think it's largely a combination of two things. One, the process is very uh, cumbersome, and uh, what we end up with each year is the congressional committee that handles the LSC budget, which clusters Justice Department funding, Commerce Department funding, and funding for science uh, agencies like NASA. So it's an odd collection. They get so much money, and uh, they have to allocate it across those very disparate needs. And so there's a lot of competing needs. And uh, I think we do all right in the competition in the sense that if the uh, Justice Commerce Science Cluster, you know, on average has increases of three to seven percent, we're often at the upper end of that uh, spectrum and are told, well, you should be happy. You got, you know, six or seven percent increases and some others only got three or four. Uh, and we might be happy if, if we weren't being funded at uh, 1994 levels. If we were over a billion dollars, then a 7% increase would be uh, a lot better than a, a 7% increase on a, uh, you know, a $450 million base. So part of it is just sort of the incremental nature of the process, which makes it hard for any one uh, agency, including a very small one like ours, to get kind of a, a, a big step increase, not just the three or 7%, but a 50 or 100% increase. You know, and I think the other aspect that makes it difficult is we're just, uh, legal aid is, is below the radar. We're a small fry in the federal budget. Now you would think that will make it easy because 500 million or even a billion dollars in the federal budget is really a drop in the bucket, but uh, it, it makes it hard for us to get attention. People generally know about us, but uh, we're not at the top of their thoughts. And uh, that's been one aspect of the pandemic that in some ways has been helpful. Uh, I know the pandemic has obviously been a horrible disaster for the country and the world, but it has drawn attention. And you've made this point uh, clear in your prior uh, comments. Uh, some of these problems that have festered for decades, whether they're or racial justice or unemployment or evictions or domestic violence, uh, you know, they've sort of operated under our consciousness or the public consciousness. Now, all of a sudden, they're on the front page, whether it's because of uh, the George Floyd murder or because all of a sudden we're seeing tens of millions of people laid off at the outset of the pandemic, or we're seeing that 20 or 30 million people might be at risk for evictions, or we're seeing spikes in uh, domestic violence. So there is more public attention being paid to civil legal issues. And I'm hopeful that with that public attention, we may succeed not only in getting the attention of the White House and uh, Congress, but uh, more money as well as kind words. Absolutely. Ron, I think your response just highlights how much more work we have to do together to get the country to understand that a lot of the social issues that we deal with, legal aid is a part of that response. And it's not an either or, it's an either and. And so I just want to say thank you again for having me uh, today. And it was great to be in conversation with you about these important issues. And we look forward to our work ahead. 
Well, April, uh, thank you. Thank you not only for being with me uh, today, but more importantly for the work you've been doing throughout your career. And uh, now as CEO and president of NLODA, we couldn't have a better partner and I look forward to working with you. Stay well. Thank you. Podcast guest speakers' views, thoughts, and opinions are solely their own and do not necessarily represent the Legal Services Corporation's views, thoughts, or opinions. The information and guidance discussed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice. You should not make decisions based on this podcast content without seeking legal or other professional advice.